This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is setting you all-time highs. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, the highest of the high, the doctor to the stars, Dr. Nirban Mahanti. How are you, mate? We're just climbing Mount Everest. That's what's I happening. like it. I like it. You're also not really a doctor and not really to the stars, but you know, it sounded good. I was kind of on a roll and I just kept going. It was pretty good. Mates, I don't know if we are setting all-time highs, but I feel like we are. I feel like we're achieving new things. We're breaking new barriers. We're setting new ground. I was going to say we've got a big show. You know what we've actually really got? We've got a small show and a lot of, hopefully, extra time for some mailbag today because this has been, it's, it's almost a funny juxtaposition. So we're going to talk about a new record in the US and a, and a benchmark level. We're going to talk about Australia and, speaking of highs and good news, the best month in over 30 years for the ASX. We're back, baby. I'm going to, well, we'll have a short talk about shorting. I will jump on my high horse. For those who've missed the high horse, it's back. And if you haven't missed it, sorry, it's still back. <laughs> and and that's pretty much it. We will then dip into the full mailbag. Now, before we start, mate, I think that's I, I was, what I was going to say. With I thought I'd, I thought I'd uh, get the, the the headlines out of the way first, but there's actually not much going on in the market at the moment. It's one of those strange scenarios where you know the market is going seemingly through the roof for largely macro reasons, almost in the absence of other news. I mean, there's plenty of stuff around. We know that China's stopped another $700 million worth of Australian coal at their ports, allegedly for pollution concerns. I think we all know that's not happening. Vaccines are, of course, around and about. Um, I guess maybe the US market's having Thanksgiving, so that might be stopping the news for a little bit. But man, it's a, you know, it's been, it's been a, for, for such a, for such a big roaring market, there's not much going on. Yes, yeah, so China's helping us out, you're saying, you know. Allegedly. Well, that's good, right? Somebody's got to, somebody's got to stop the coal. So the Chinese are stopping the coal and, you know, they're saving... How's that helping? I don't know, it's saving the, <laughs> isn't it saving the planet? Oh, I mean, no, they're taking other people's coal. They're not stopping our coal. They're stopping our coal for trade, political reasons, pretending it's about pollution, taking everyone else's coal But they're coal taking, well, effectively, they're taking less coal. Which, no, you, no, no, no. Why, taking- why don't you give China at least some credit here <laughs> for doing the right thing? Like, I mean, for digging, you know, they're basically saying don't dig for coal, you know, dig for other things. No, no, they're taking other people's coal instead. Oh, I, need the coal. I didn't hear about that. I just, <laughs> I just heard that they're taking less coal. So less I, Australian I coal is the key. All right. So anyway, so for, for, for lots of macro, not a lot of micro, the good news, as I said, is we're going to spend more time on the mailbag, which is good also because it is massively full. We've got a chockers mailbag. I couldn't even drag it into the room. It was that big. We have to go outside and get them and bring them inside. Do you reckon people believe that? Uh, no, probably not. No, no. Um, I didn't print them out. They're all on my screen, which is incidentally why occasionally we have a, a, a listener, as we did this week, say, um, Scott, you told me that my question was on the list. And that was a couple of months ago. I haven't heard it yet. That's usually because I stuff up when I'm copying and pasting stuff. So if, if I haven't answered your question, I think I've caught up on everything. I did check yesterday afternoon while I was putting the, the mail together. So if I have missed it, please feel free to let me know. But in the meantime, we'll get through as many as we possibly can today. So that's enough preamble, mate, speaking of not having enough time and nothing to talk about. Let's start with... Dow 30,000. Now, I remember, was it, was it, I think it was a book called Dow 40,000 written in like 1999. Was it, does that ring a bell for you? No idea. So there was a book written all that long ago when the Dow has gone through 10,000 and these uh, pundits were making the case that Dow, Dow's going to go straight to 40,000 and keep going forever because things have changed and life is different. And, and then, of course, we had the dot com crash and it's taken a very, very long time to get back from 210, then to 20, now finally to 30,000 points. Now, I've got some issues with the Dow. I think you probably got some issues with the Dow as well. Um, it's it's a it's the world's oldest, strangest stock index because it doesn't even use the market cap, the, the market, the size of the companies in its index. It uses their prices, and we have talked many, 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 many times about the fact that the price of a share doesn't matter because you can slice up as many pieces as you want. Unfortunately, when the Dow Jones index was started, the computers didn't exist, and so some poor bugger had to sit down and work out whether the market had gone up and down based on how prices move. That's all they could use. Unfortunately, though, more than a century later, or almost a century later, we're still doing the same thing. Still 30 companies, despite the fact there's what, is there like three or 4,000 companies on the US markets? Um, they're still using price rather than the index. And so if you've got a $100 company and a $1 company on that exchange, the $100 company doubles and the $1 company halves, the, the, you know, the, the market, the Dow Jones effectively would go up by you know effectively double, even though the the reality of those two companies is not the same same sort of outcome. It's just one of those really weird statistical realities. I I thought it was worth you know. So there's a tweet again. I mentioned Morgan Hauslau, Eric's full colleague, every now and again. Uh, so thirty thousand, kind of big deal across the benchmark. We like turn of the century. We like hundred dollar bills. We kind of like these things. Um, <laughs> Morgan tweeted uh, a tweet uh, yesterday saying, uh, "Just I'll quote it. Uh, quote academics: colon investors are rational." 
Investors, colon. Round numbers, yay! <laughs> and I thought that was about it, right? For all our rationality, 29,999 points is no big deal. 30,001 points is no big deal. But I'll tell you what, when we cross that threshold, we're pretty excited. Uh, maybe you got a thought about that. Maybe you just got a thought in general about the size, the height, the value of the US market. You know, I actually never look at the Dow. Okay. <laughs> I just don't look at it. There it's not even an index <laughs> that I, I follow. Because right. exactly for all the reasons you said, it's okay. a price index. It's got 30 companies. Um, if you split the shares, the index <laughs> gets hit on the head because <laughs> because the shares have all of a sudden fallen in value. But mate, you can't write headlines of, of yeah. uh, S&P 3,629. Dow 30,000 sounds so much better, doesn't it's, it? It sounds exciting. It's a big, you, know, you know why the journals love the Dow? Because the numbers are higher. So if the S&P, the S&P is roughly, let's call it a tenth of, in terms of you know index price. So 30,000 points for the Dow, 3,600 points for the S&P. You, if the S&P gains 100 points, not a big deal. But if the Dow gains 1,000 points, that sounds huge. And again, it's exactly that same problem, right? Yeah. Of It's not the points, it's the base you work from and how it's calculated. Yeah, which is, you know, it is there for historical reasons, I think. And you've just explained them. And um, yeah, but it doesn't really, it's no real indicator of where the market is really going, right? Yeah, because yeah. say a small set of companies, it's a price index, it's not a market weighted index, or market cap weighted index. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a selection of companies chosen by a committee. <laughs> right mm-hmm. so it also depends on what yes, companies exactly, are there exactly. which keep changing right yeah, depending yeah, yeah. on what the committee decides at what point in time yep. it should be the constituents of the Dow 30 right it's not the 30 largest company for, correct, for correct. example right yes, yes, yes. it's just 30 companies yes. picked by yes. a committee and, and right? it's funny I, I, I would I would speculate I, I'm not inside this and I don't want to impugn anybody's reputation but I would speculate these days they're kind of like Guys, we've got a maximum of thirty. How can we make it look roughly like the S and P five hundred, so the index doesn't become completely irrelevant? I, I, you know, they they try and have representation across industries. They try and make sure it's to some degree representative. It has liquidity minimums, minimums, and stuff like that. But if I if I was a betting man, mate, I would say these days they probably look around and go. Let's just make this look as close to the S and P as possible, so we just stay somewhat relevant. Yeah, and that's possibly true. As I said, I just haven't looked at it in a long time. I, mm. If you ask me to name the thirty. Yeah, I'd right. probably I'd probably struggle beyond like naming two I would too. I would or too. maybe five. So I don't yeah. know what those thirty yeah, yeah. are. Yeah, right. So yeah, like I mean, it's it's interesting. Good headlines. Yeah, <laughs> that's what it's all about, right? That being said, so okay, let's move on from that. The S and P is still at at highish levels. Um, we talked about this a little bit last week, so let's not overdo the, the conversation. But I mean, if you think about the S and P, this the S and P was down twenty two hundred points in March. It's now at three thousand six hundred and twenty nine points. That's a sixty five percent gain in. What? Let's look at my let's look at my calendar. We're recording this on the twenty sixth of November. That's eight months. That is a I mean, bouncing back from a massive low, of course. So I'm not much this is anyway representative, but man, that's a huge recovery, right? I mean it's it's just it's just a phenomenal, phenomenal story. Look, the thing I want to I want to point out to our listeners is is largely just and we've made this point for months, but it's kind of it, it's it's for some people it's hard to hear the point being made when things are terrible because it's like, yeah, you say that, but what if? And and we never we didn't know what was going to happen with any certainty. Of course we didn't. But I, I kind of just want to remake the point, mate. Not to say I was right at the time, though. I think we were. Um, the the point that you know the markets do come back, and I think those who wanted to wait till the recovery is over, or those who said when the pandemic's finished, or I'll wait till there's better news, or whatever. I mean, there's still people today saying, oh, well, the economy could be better, and yes, that's true. But as we just said, in the meantime, the S and P's up sixty five percent. The ASX is probably up. 35, 40%, maybe even 45%, I think, these days. Um, it, you know, ju- just staying invested, even, even if you didn't buy anything more, just staying invested rather than, you know, running for the hills, time and time again is shown as being a really important thing to, to try and get yourself to do. And I want to make the point now because if you heard it at the time and couldn't quite accept it, that's cool, I get it. Hopefully, by making the point after the fact, by asking you to reflect on what happened and saying, just remember this next time, at least, hopefully we can save some people some grief and maybe some financial loss next time around. Yeah, I, I think that that all makes uh, a lot of sense. I think um, because again, I mean, if, when when the markets as a whole have dropped, I mean, you know, you're basically getting you you just being able to buy at a cheaper price as long as the future sounds um, mm. good, mm. better mm. than the pessimistic outlook at that point right, in right. time. It, it is definitely a good opportunity to buy. Mm. I mean, if you're an index buyer, that definitely you know it, it makes sense to buy more when it's low. Totally. And buy less, I guess, when it's high, right? So- Which, by the way, just really quickly, that's the whole point of dollar cost averaging, right? That, that's the beauty. Uh, you know, dollar cost averaging is smart because it's automated. You do it regularly. I mean, that's that's smart in and of itself. And if you bought at the same price every time, that it should be super smart. 
What I like about this dollar cost averaging is when the market, if you're putting, let's say you're putting 500 bucks a month, let's just pick a number, um, and you're putting that into the market every single month, that $500 is a fixed dollar amount, but you get more shares, as you say, when prices are low, you get fewer shares when prices are high, you kind of, you're not exactly reweighting because you're buying the same thing, but it's just a beautiful way to take advantage of pessimism and also not overcommit when things get higher. It's just, it's a lovely, lovely opportunity to really take advantage of volatility without even having to lift a finger other than just committing to the discipline of continuing to invest month in, month out. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I agree with that. I mean, it's a great point, uh, right? The, the, I mean, the only other thing I'll say is that, you know, when everything is on sale, right, mm-hmm. or everything is on discount, mm-hmm. then you could also find, you know, so if you're not an index buyer, I think mm-hmm. that's also an opportunity for you. Like at that point totally. in time, yeah, you, yeah. You, you know, there'll, there'll be some companies will be sold more than the index, sold off more than the index. And th- those might be opportunities at that time as well. So, yeah. Nice. Thank you, mate. Um, look, I think the other thing we kind of, and we kind of referred to at the top, but let's just quickly touch on it. The Sorry, the ASX 200 is going to have in November touch wood because there's still a couple of trading sessions to go as we record this. So, you know, anything can happen over the next three days. I don't want to be the person responsible for jinxing the entire market. But almost certainly, unless there's a massive catastrophe in the next three days, going to have the best month ever. And the and I say ever because the index was, has been around since 2000, so literally the best month in 20 years. The All Odds, though, has been around effectively forever. Going to have the best month since 1988. Which is saying something, given we've, you know, that the, the the GFC, the dot com crash. Although we didn't have a lot of dot com companies here, but you know, big market ructions, the the Asian financial crisis in the late nineties. Um, we're gonna have a better month than the recovery from any of those particular months. And I am not really sure what to think, mate. I think this is this seems to be to me a, a vaccine related bounce back um, because the market's up. But if you look at the t- the companies that are up, uh, banks are doing well, property trusts are doing well, energy stocks are doing well. That is. I won't say rotation because I hate that term, uh, but but that is that does seem to me the restoration of confidence, a, a vote of confidence by investors saying, I'm going to buy those companies that we ignored because we thought the economy was in trouble. We're buying them now because we think things are going to get better or are getting better. So the banks are being bought because prices are going up, bad debts are probably not going to be a problem. At least that's the view of the market. I think that might be true. Um Oil, again, going up just because oil's going up because the economy's recovering globally. That helps our, our oil our oil companies, our drillers. Um, it, it just seems to me a yeah, property trust again because we're going to go back to the shops. This does seem like the return to normal trade. Um, it's probably going to be a better name for that for me to get it trademarked. But there's some sort of, you know, bounce back, return to normal. A bit of it does just strike me as investors saying, oh, good, we, we don't have to worry anymore. Is that your take? Do you have a different one? Um, so the ASX 200 is another index that I look at, <laughs> but I actually don't care that much about. Um, largely because it's full of those companies that, you know, I call the dinosaur era companies that, you know, um, there are better places to um, right, right. Uh, to fish than to fish there. Like, I mean, there'll be some companies in the ASX 200 that are, that are interesting for sure. Fair uh, to say, but, I mean, our, our bogey, our benchmark is the All Lords, which is effectively the ASX 200. We've... Well, I also for my services, I've underperformed over the last month simply because we don't have any banks or oil oil drillers, and when they when they're on a tear, it's hard to keep up. I mean, that's that's part of what I'm seeing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, yeah, but it's you know, but it's only a month, right? So here's totally. here's the way I I I think about them. So in in any sane world, I don't understand how one would pay 18, 20 times earnings. For banks whose earnings are basically not growing, oh, totally. right? I, mate, one of them is twenty-two. To, I think it was. Uh, is it ANZ twenty-two? So, uh, crazy. Whatever. Even if it is crazy. like an, on average eighteen, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so you're paying basically for earnings that are not growing, earnings yeah. that have got no upside, um, effectively for a while, mm, mm, right? Mm. Um, so. You know, it almost seems like it's like a desperation trade, right? I have nothing else to buy, so I buy these things. Um, so uh, I, I, I don't know. Right, like I mean, that's one one angle, uh, one aspect mm. of it, right? Mm. And it is, at least in my mind, hard to like none of the challenges that we have talked about, and they have not eventuated. But none of the challenges that we have talked about in the past, mm. where uh, that be you know lack of productivity growth mm. or high debt or you know the amount of disposable income that people have got, all of those challenges are actually there. They're just being actually they become worse, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and while we might have band-aid solutions right now, it's like basically kicking the can down the road, right? So um, th- this group, especially the top 50, and there are exceptions again, I've, I've yeah. pointed out things like Afterpay, which, you know, so uh, removing the innovators out of that list, mm-hmm. I think it's very challenged. So 
that's my view. At least I look at them and I say, okay, no, thank you. Um, I'm not going to touch any one of them yeah, with right. even a long, in fact, it's almost like this, you know, it's like, if somebody gave me those shares for free, I would not take them. <laughs> so, yeah, would you take them and sell them? I know you. Well, well yeah, maybe, maybe I'll do that. So, but, but if somebody's you know, giving them a hand and you know, you, you keep them, it'll just look like a liability to me. So, yeah. um, that's my view. Uh, I, I think again, the, a lot of those companies just don't have growth opportunities because you know they're local, they're local, serving local market. Mm-hmm. You know, basically mortgage companies. I don't know how you grow, mm-hmm. right? And for non-growth companies, I'd pay like ten times P, maybe twelve times. P. So may, maybe the I think the only sane explanation I can think of mm-hmm. is the fact that well. Maybe we'll have negative interest rates. Maybe we will have like, you know, uh, our discount rates therefore need to be adjusted. Maybe it's yeah. that. Maybe it's the realization that the, it's the counter. It's not that the economy is great. It is that the economy is actually not good. Right. And therefore, we're going to have low rates for a long time. Mm-hmm. And therefore, well, it's okay <laughs> to pay a higher multiple, right? Um, so I, I don't know. Like that's my view about that there's a group of companies that have not touched. So anyways, that's what I think. Nice. I think that's true. I think that's true. I, I do think, look, I think I think there is some degree that, that there is a view that there is no alternative to your point. I mean, the, the old Tina acronym, one of my favorite acronyms actually, Fang I can take or leave, Wax I hate. Tina, I kind of like, there is no alternative, just a fun one. Um, the Just the, the very idea that um, I think for many people, the the... Not that rationally there is no alternative, but they see no alternative. If you think about maximizing dividends, well, banks are the go-to place. If you think about 30, 40 years of capital growth, again, not recently, but if you add the numbers together, if you own the banks in 1982 and you still own them now, you're thinking, well, hang on, I've gone from a buck to 80. You know, I made a lot of money here. There is a sense, I think, that it's that, it's that safety blanket. It's that sense of people feeling like, well, I get, thank goodness I can buy my banks again is what I expect is happening right now. For those reasons, um, some part of, partly real, partly, you know, unfortunately not real. Um, and I think that's, to me, a, a big problem. And uh, frankly, on top of that, the, the, the rates issue, I don't know about negative rates, but as you rightly point out, and we've, I heard some people on Twitter only yesterday comment to me that, you know, effectively this new monetary, well, new monetary policy, continued monetary policy, newly low rates, is effectively making saving not possible. You, you, you can't fund a retirement with cash in the bank. You just can't anymore. Short of eating your capital year after year after year and eventually with nothing, th- there is no alternative in terms of a cash alternative. You have to be invested in something for, for income. And I guess if you're a conservative, self-funded retiree, pensioner in that kind of bucket somewhere, you're thinking, well, I don't know. I don't really want to invest. I don't really want to buy shares. But if I'm going to, I guess I'll buy the banks because I hear they're good. I think there's a lot of behavioral bias, maybe even almost entirely behavioral bias going into this. Yeah, that's possibly true. Uh, I mean, there's money that goes... You know, I think this... I call these the systemic problems, right? It's a yeah. systemic problem because... There's anchoring, right? Yep. So it, what was true, like, you know, so if you think about from being government-run or state government-run banks to being private-run banks mm-hmm. to, you know, actually changing the way banking works, right? So you could understand why from the 1990s to maybe, you know, the early 2000s, the banks were great because mm-hmm. there was a lot of efficiencies being created, right? Um, and, and and the environment, you know, went mm-hmm. from, basically was a competitive environment, to now we have like an oligopoly type of setup, right? Which means everybody is like basically comfortable uh, with each other and you've, you know, everybody knows what the pricing regime is and things like that, right? So mm-hmm. I, I think we can't equate that environment to this environment is, yeah, is right. number one. Yep. Number two is that, you, you know, like things like the there's biases automatically in the system, right? So if there's money mm-hmm. being put into super, that super money needs to be invested. The super funds are probably putting the money into the SX200. Mm-hmm. And it, it is basically, in many ways, it's not a pyramid, but it's like a pyramid, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If more money goes mm-hmm. into something, it's mm-hmm. again, buying and selling pressures, right? And then, well, it's inherent imbalance between supply and demand. It's inherent yeah. imbalance between supply and demand. Yeah. So, and I think it's, why I'm calling it inherent biases is that you know, there's no reason that all that money needs to go there, but it Mate, is going there. That drives me. I, right? I can't tell you how nuts that is. So, so yeah. Like, so, but, but what I know is, or in my mind, mm. is an inherent imbalance, which is not structurally um, tenable, can continue for a long time, but at some point it gives way, mm-hmm. right? And I just don't want to be a person holding the bag mm-hmm. when it gives way. See, I don't. I'm not as ne- uh, generally not as negative or cynical as you. I think that's fair to say. Um, but specifically, I think uh, the only thing I would say is I think there's a third option, right? So there is there's 
an inflation of a, a boom slash bubble. There is a popping of it, but there's also a slow deflation slash stagnation, right? So I think there's there's something in between where it doesn't need to give way necessarily. As the as the flow of money in just simply tapers away, it, it has an impact, absolutely, but it doesn't need to be an impact that says, oops, the entire market's falling 50% because the flow of superannuation stops suddenly. It'll be one of those things that I think just, just the, the, the rate of growth slows, maybe even turns into a slow decline, but that doesn't necessarily need to be, in my view, a you know a holding the bag moment as much as it simply is an underperformance moment. But, but it's, well, in my view, that's holding the bag, right? Okay, so if, okay. so if, if you had You're invested- way though. I just want to, I want to be clear about, uh, you may be predicting this, I don't think there'll be a big giveaway moment. There'll just be a sense well, of- does, It doesn't have to be a crash. Right. Well, it doesn't have to be a crash, but effectively, for your own portfolio, yeah. if you held Westpac shares over the last 10 years, it is effectively a crash. Your portfolio ha- is now smaller. <laughs> effectively than it could have been yes, than it should true. have been that's absolutely true. because you know those decisions were yes, made right yes, yes. so it's not it doesn't it doesn't necessarily you know everything is not about you know that the market is going to crash by 50% no, no. and it's going to be like you know but it is just a poor outcome yep. and and I'm just pointing out that for anyone who's interested in better outcome <laughs> don't have to pick when you've got multiple choices you don't have to pick the choice that has low chances low mm-hmm. of being a good outcome right mm-hmm. just picking that for whatever reason that's being picked yeah. is just a poor decision right yeah. and so, so I, I you know in my mind that's a bag holding moment yeah i think we're on the same page I, I, I it was the give way term that i wanted to just kind of clarify because it it felt to me that you were implying that maybe there was some going to be some sort of significant moment where all of a sudden the, the floor dropped out and well, was, well no but the, the, so there is a probability some some chance that yes. that's going to happen oh, yeah. always there's, possible, there's, yeah. there's always possibility yeah, yeah. that the housing market collapses yep, totally. right and and the thing with these collapses is if it collapses it yes. collapses I at think, that I point think that's you- actually a whole i mean that's a bigger one for mine than just general bank underperformance that that that's a really well, it's a yeah, possibility risk. Yeah, but totally. i don't know what the probability is but it's a possibility yep. right and and it has happened in all sorts of markets right absolutely all sorts of things can happen there's mm-hmm. a probability assigned to it mm-hmm. but the probability of upside here mm-hmm. is pretty low, <laughs> in my mind. So that's you know. So so the, if you look at the range of outcomes you can have, mm-hmm. you have more downside than upside here, right? Right, right, right. So, uh, so you know, effectively, you're deciding if somebody's taking those decisions, then they're basically making a good take the downside because hey, I like the downside. Mm-hmm. Right? That's a bag holding moment in my view. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why would you do that? Yeah, no, no, right. You know, as fair, I. Yeah. I as an investor, yep, you should be yep, a mercenary. Yep, invest totally. to find your best returns. <laughs> Putting money on the banks does right. not necessarily help you. That's right. That's right. right. So, um, so you got to again, you got to make yeah. a decision that's good for yourself, and yeah, uh, yeah and that's that's my point. I think we, are, I think we are completely aligned on that one, mate. All right, let's let's move on then quickly because I think I want to I want to talk about shorting. Now, I've I've been I'm on record saying I think shorting is a horrible thing. Um, I, I think because of the impact it has on investors, not because of the technical trading. Plenty of people find it immoral. I find it slightly immoral, actually, but that's not enough reason to think it's necessarily should go away. What I don't like about shorting, for what it's worth personally, is the impact it has on retail shelves in particular, but the market in general. And we know that humans, I've said this before, feel loss around the, uh, about three times as much as they feel the joy of a similar gain. So if I lose $10, I feel three times worse than if I make $10 is the way that human psychology works, at least on in general. And the impact of that means if there's someone who says, hey, you should buy BHP shares, they're great. People go, oh, that's interesting. Um, uh, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll buy them, maybe I won't. Maybe the shares go up half a percent, maybe they don't. The equivalent person comes and says, I think BHP is terrible. I'm going to short the stock. It's going to crash. Everyone goes, oh, they must know something I don't know, and the shares fall 10%. The, 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 my issue is the asymmetry of the long versus the short case. It's not the short case shouldn't be put, uh, but I find particularly those activists, in air quotes, shorters who actively try and, I will. Oh, I can say this actually because I'm about individual ones. I think largely try to force a price down, try to create the circumstances for a price to fall. I think is a real blight on our market because of the impact it has on. I don't really care about the companies. What I care about is individual shareholders who, frankly, you know, people like people listening to this podcast, Doc, who hear it and go, I kind of like the company. I think it's okay, but geez, that guy might know something. He's smart. He's well paid. He's you know got got letters after his name. Wears a shiny suit. I better sell just in case he's right. Now we said that before. What I wanted to mention, I think today, um, I saw we saw in the in the AFR this morning that WiseTech, the global logistics software company, has reaffirmed its guidance, and it reminded me that there was a massive short case out against WiseTech six months ago. Am I roughly right? Maybe oh, probably before GFC, wasn't it? Uh, before GFC, before COVID. Um, so maybe, maybe it was twelve months ago. So WiseTech, there was a short, massive short case on. There was a massive short case out only a few months ago on Seek, the employment business. 
Rural Funds Management came under short attack earlier this year, late last year. Corporate Travel Management, and I own shares for the record, was shorted, uh, and again, by an activist shorter, uh, I want to say two years ago, something like that. Now, I just wanted to point out, not to take a victory lap about corporate travel at all, because God knows they've had bigger issues than short sellers over the last 12 months, but I wanted to just, I guess I wanted to mention it because I want to remind our listeners, mate, that while all of those cases seemed diabolical and terrible and, and all that stuff at the time, and while it was supposed to be the end of this and the end of that, and this company was a fraud and that was going broke, when you kind of look at it now with the benefit of hindsight, as scary as it was at the time, and this is probably investing writ large, right, with all the news and headlines, as scary as it was at the time, as freaked out as people were at the time. Turns out, <laughs> these four short cases just didn't actually impact the business. In fact, I would say all four cases were busted, or if they were even slightly true, the passage of time has meant that investors have done reasonably well by simply holding on rather than selling out to panic at the bottom of those particular share price falls. Now, I will also say there are some short cases that are right. So I'm not saying not all shorters. I'm not saying, you know, press on regardless, you know, don't listen to the bad news. We always as investors should consider the bear case for any investment and make sure it's not true. If, if someone gives you some new information, you should consider it, work out whether you think it's true, whether it's likely to be true and whether it should impact your choice. So I'm not saying, you know, there should be, um, we should never listen to a short seller. I guess what I wanted to make the point to our listeners now, mate, in the benefit of hindsight, because we don't tend to do a lot of that, right? As, as investors, as people, we look at the here and now, and then 12 months later, I mean, that's, <laughs> I'll tangent quickly, some of our erstwhile competitors who make lots of buy and sell recommendations, make them in the full knowledge they can make the recommendation and then forget about it. And in six months time, no one even remembers they made the call. So there's no there's no cost to it. It's like interview forecast, right? The Dow will be X by the end of the year. If you're right, you say, hey, look what I was right. And if you're wrong, you just don't mention it. No one ever checks. And so you get away with it scot-free. So, you know, it's a bit the shame, but, but I wanted to make the point for shorting in particular that yes, pay attention. Yes, you know, don't ever be blase about it. But just remember that short cases often, maybe even more often than not, are wrong and you can lose a lot of money just by knee-jerk selling because frankly that's what they want you to do when the short case is revealed yeah i like uh, i mean i don't disagree with anything that you said i mean is there a butt coming <laughs> no no there's no but but, but but there's a but uh, there's, there's always a but i was going to say that um it could actually be an opportunity for the for the individual investor, right? So oh yeah, absolutely. So so the reverse is also true, right? Mm-hmm. If somebody's taking a, a short bet, so the the thing mm. with the short bet that people need to realize is short bet really has a finite upside, mm-hmm. um, because you make a you know let's say corporate travel is I'm just making up these numbers, but let's say corporate travel is at thirty bucks, mm-hmm. and the short case was released and the price mm-hmm. falls, 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 and it goes to fifteen dollars, mm-hmm. and maybe the shorts leave at fifteen dollars, right? Mm-hmm. So they've basically made fifteen bucks per share. Now, the long side though could actually get in at twenty dollars. And effectively wait. Yes. Yeah. Right. right? Absolutely. Yes. So, yeah. so the converse is that if you believe that your thesis is correct and mm-hmm. the shorts are doing their, you know, thing, and you disagree with them, mm-hmm. and um, you believe that you know this 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 too shall pass, mm-hmm. then there's an opportunity. So I think the, the thing to realize is that sometimes shorting can create uh, wonderful opportunities, okay. and um, so I, I mean, you know, I don't fundamentally mind. You know, think about this. I I don't fundamentally mind the fact that shorting is there because um, mm. you know, and this, I've cha- I'm changing my opinion here on this because <laughs> um, because I think shorting can create a lot of noise on the short term. Yeah, assuming a company can survive the shorting, so a company would not survive the shorting if it is dependent on its shares, right? Mm. In which case, the company is is in a weak position, which is probably a valid reason to short the company. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, the company can or is weak and therefore can be disabled by the shares mm. going down. Mm. Um, however, if the company is not dependent on the sh- uh, on the share price, for whatever reason, and then most mm. companies unfortunately are dependent on the shares because you know the CEO owns shares or, right, right, right. or yeah. company employees own yeah, shares yeah. and they're vesting and people feel bad about it and all those things. So there's a moral, uh, there's a morale issue yeah. there. But putting those aside, I think it can be an opportunity, right? I mean, each one of those, if you, if you said that you're going to buy, corporate travel went down to like $15 and if you believed mm. in a long story, well, yeah, you could buy yeah, at 15 yeah. So. So maybe that that's the thing, you know. There's there's an advantage for uh, for any investor to a build uh, the stomach for volatility. Right? Yeah. There's going to be shorting 
if shorting is not um, is not banned, there's going to be shorting anyways, um, and therefore you oh, can totally. use it, you can use it in an opportunity if yeah. Uh, if possible. Yeah, I think that's right. And look, I think that that's also a really good point, mate. So my my issue comes from largely the impact on the retail shareholder in particular, so mum and dad, people like us, who but who aren't necessarily geared and ready. I mean, we talk about bank shareholders, right? They are not going to be as a general point, probably not even listening to this podcast, right? They're people who aren't necessarily as financially savvy or frankly prepared emotionally for it. And as you say, it's been like the, a bit like the crash this year. I mean, it was a great opportunity. Buying stocks in March, April, May, June, you made a fortune. But it was hard to do because the market was falling, doom and gloom was everywhere. I think that's my, my broad issue is the, uh, it's a great opportunity for people like you and I, people who have the financial discipline, the financial savvy, the, the frankly stomach for volatility to go and buy stuff cheap. What, what worries me is I think the impact on the average investor who simply says, man, that's scary, I'm getting out. You know, the people who just aren't prepared to, aware of, comforted by, uh, you know, informed about volatility and who can make the right calls. Yeah, so again, I'll add a little bit of a but there, right? So yeah, go for it. <laughs> just, just to add um, an additional point. So take the, like, I mean, I think in the, with the benefit of hindsight looks like, oh, there was a screaming buy opportunity, mm. but... Mm so this the coronavirus pandemic right mm-hmm. but we do know that there are companies that were basically fundamentally disabled by um mm-hmm. the pandemic no you're totally yeah companies that didn't have the balance sheet. actually a lot of companies mm-hmm. did not mm-hmm. have the balance sheet yep right and a lot of companies a lot of people have been diluted mm-hmm. right so while the share come back maybe the long-term returns are actually going to still be poor because they've been diluted like mm-hmm. like no tomorrow mm-hmm. like and that list of companies that raised money mm-hmm. Right, I think this is what people are forgetting: mm. is that while the shares have gone up, the list of companies that have raised money, starting from the banks to doing the hybrids to everyone, mm, ASX mm, two hundred mm. and down, mm. it's a pretty long list. Yeah, totally. Right, totally. And uh, while the balance sheets look strong now, they're coming at a cost. Mm, mm. Right. So maybe the long-term returns are actually not going to be great. That's number one point I want to make. Mm. Um, number two point I want to make is, while it seems like the pandemic is going to get resolved quickly. Mm-hmm. What if the pandemic didn't get resolved quickly? In which case, mm-hmm. many of these uh, companies. Uh, my main point is that you really, if you want to buy in a, so I want to separate shorting, which is an individual company specific issue, from mm-hmm. general economic worldwide issue, mm-hmm. where it is quite possible that companies, many companies, are going to have permanently their earnings power over the long period. Uh, compromised, mm, right? Mm, mm. And while in the short term it might appear that the shares are back, maybe actually on the long term the shares are not going to be back. Mm. And and that's really a function of balance sheet. So yes, mm, mm. Um, you know, uh, there was a great time to buy those companies which have billions of dollars on their balance sheet, but a poor time to buy companies that have ten billion dollars on their balance sheet because they mm. would they would not survive, right? And and I think that capital. Uh, on the balance sheet, the quality of the balance sheet, the quality and strength of the business, the you know, I think is important to consider when you're looking at mm. sort of one-off events. Mm. I, I think that's true. I think that's true. I, I just think it's one of those things that you know, at an individual company level, you're dead right, and I think that's you absolutely need to be careful which companies you bought and how you how you invested. But I think you know, there's not yet been a crisis, including world wars, oil shocks, stagflations, all the things we've had over the last hundred plus years in in you know what we now know as the modern day stock market that the ASX, the US markets, have not recovered from. And I think that's that's broadly my point is, you know, it, it was, even if you'd done what we don't do, which is just simply buy an index right through, the dollar cost averaging we talked about at the top of the show, just that very idea of, you know, the, 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 possi- the, the probability that the markets never got back to the February 2020 highs, that somehow that was going to be the high watermark forever, was just really silly unlikely in, in my view. I think it was just a, it was a no-brainer to keep investing during that period of time, even if you did, as you say, invested conservatively or invested in an index or did whatever, it was just, it, it, it strained credibility to believe we weren't going to get back. And if that was the case, and the market was a third below its, you know, February 19, 2020 highs, you know what I mean? Like there was just, there was, there was money, it was money for jam at that point. Now, time frame, as you say, no idea, didn't know it was going to come back so quickly, would not have ever forecast. I would have thought maybe 18 months, maybe it was probably if I was going to guess. Um, it turns out like what seven eight months. Um, so I was off by about half or you know, double. Um, but you know it, it, it would have been the first time in history in the ASX or the US markets that didn't come back to those previous highs. I think that's where the odds were just were just crazy in favour of the investor who could hold their nose and buy anyway. Um, I'm going to take a slightly different view on that. Like I mean, I, I think yes, you could have invested. I think index investing. I would agree, but I would caveat that by saying that you know a lot of companies that look like you know they're billion dollars two billion dollars three billion dollars mm. four billion dollars market cap 
they're just permanently impaired. So while mm-hmm. while their shares have come back, mm-hmm. maybe there's euphoria right now, mm-hmm. right? And whether or not that euphoria is justified, yeah. we don't know. Totally, so, totally. So that, I, I think, again, individually you could go and look at companies and decide, okay, that company yeah. is going to be just fine. Yep. That company may not be just fine. Sure, absolutely. And, and I think that's the way I would mm. think about it, right? And be very careful about certain companies many of them which have basically had to raise capital as I said at dirt cheap prices oh, totally. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, think, I think we're saying different things we're not even disagreeing just different different, different uh, subsets of the same broad phenomenon right which is when index goes up some companies go up some go down uh, we've talked about the banks in the last you know, last little while as well just that, that the, the, the net sum total of everything was at an index level the market is up 40 plus percent since the since the lows even though individual companies have done terribly and some have done really really well um if you had the right companies did even better as you said the opportunity for the enterprising investor was to buy after pay eight dollars in march right or or whatever other company at the same time there's plenty of companies that have done phenomenally well and better than the index some that have done worse than the index but if you either chose the right businesses or you simply bought the index you've, you've done pretty well since then yeah, no, yeah. I don't again disagree, but I'll say that the only thing I'll say is that you know they've come back. You know, we don't know what. I mean, if we are focusing on the long term, what we don't know is what the long term returns are. Yeah, sure. Right. So the, if the long term returns are four percent or ten percent, there's a difference between those two. That's the point I'm basically trying to make. And from I think here. that yeah, yeah, no, from there. Okay. From even that point, right? Maybe they're up forty percent now, mm-hmm. but if over ten years you still get compounded five percent, well, they're probably not. It's not a good buy, right? That's my point. My point yeah, is that we, we've made some money, mate. Let us keep the money we've made at no, least. No, but Come I think on. it's short term. It's, <laughs> I think like you know, um, it doesn't really matter. Uh, we, uh, I think, as fundamental investors, we can, you know, you can decide what type of returns you want to get, and yeah. then you can basically focus on what you're getting over the long term, right? Yeah. So I think uh, again, a part of the returns is driven by, for example, the banks having 22 times multiple. Yeah. Like I mean, it's unlikely, in my view, that they're mm-hmm. going to carry that multiple forever, yeah. and their earnings are going to expand. That we're going to, you know, so if the mm-hmm. banks are part of the index, mm-hmm. well, future returns poor to me. So, uh, you know, so again, I, I think index, uh, I want to k- be careful here. Think the problem with the SX200 as an index mm-hmm. is it is weighed heavily by banks, yep, which absolutely. really don't grow, um, and some other companies which really don't have the balance sheet, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, I think, incorrect to compare that with Amazon sure. or anything absolutely. else because those are different businesses, right? Of so course. I think that's, that's the distinction I'm trying to make. And then I'm trying to say that, well, if something is at 20 times multiple right now, hmm. well, we want to be careful because if it goes to 15, well, hmm. you're going to lose a lot of money, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right? So that's the, that's the thing. So you hmm. don't know what the multiple is in the future hmm. is my, my second point. But yeah, we made some money in the interim, which is good. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Well, I'm going to, it wasn't really a ramp, but I'm going to ramp properly this time because I have a massive bee in my bonnet about this bloody superannuation stuff. And I think what I wanted to highlight to our listeners is super is one of those weird things where the government over the last, governments over the last 25-ish years, give or take, right now, um, have put some plans in place to save us from ourselves. We know the humans suck at saving. If you look at our savings pre-super or equivalent retirement pools around the rest of the world where there is no compulsory nature of savings, the average person, the average Australian pre-super, the average um, other person in the developed world, aggregate all of those countries that don't have a compulsory super system, are going to be woefully, woefully, woefully unprepared for their retirement. I think super is hands down the best in financial, personal financial policy of the last 40 years. And we don't really value it because it's just too far away and too hard to get to. And we've got issues with governments controlling and the rules and you know individual fund managers or union officials taking the money. And I, you know what? That's all kind of worth talking about, absolutely. But it's a small issue compared to the sheer dollar value that our retirement's going to be improved by across Australia because of super. So I want to I want to kind of raise that as a, as a consciousness thing first. Second thing is to say some of the changes that are now being mooted to super are just completely, in my view, unconscionable. Currently, we're having nine and a half percent of our salary put aside for retirement, and that's supposed to go to twenty uh, to twelve percent by twenty twenty five. Now that's five odd years away. That would mean effectively a third, one third increase in the amount of super we will have in retirement, all else being equal, because of the increase over the next five years. 
turns out the government and some of their supporters, I don't get political, but I'm happy to go policy here, um, are talking about stopping either temporarily or permanently the increase from 95 to 12%. And the reasons have been provided have been massively everything from small businesses can't afford it through to, well, you should buy houses instead, through to the economy can't afford it, through to, well, maybe it's too much money in retirement. Um, it's one of those things where you know you throw enough mud and in, in total, hopefully some of it sticks and hopefully you get what you want. This seems to me a solution looking for a problem. And I have to say that given this, given the quality, given the value of this, I just want listeners to be aware of the changes that are being mooted. Please don't turn it off. Please don't think, oh, super boring, who cares? Or, you know, don't get sucked in by some of the excuses. This is generally our retirement at work. And I will say, I'm fine. Doc, you're probably fine if we don't increase super because it's not going to hurt me financially. Of course, it will hurt in absolute dollar terms. But I've got enough super that hopefully will compound over the next, well, if I'm working another 20 years, that, that'll do its job. I have enough personal savings outside super and I intend to keep adding to that over the next 20 years as I continue to work. I don't need the extra increase in super. What I worry about is the, the low-income worker, the part-time worker, the single mum, the, the, the woman who's taken five or 10 years out of the workforce, trying to get a decent super together. They need that increase. We know the amount of money we should be saving for retirement. Any expert, any financial expert around the world will tell you 9.5% is not enough for a comfortable retirement. So to the extent that super is going to be paused or cancelled, that increase, just the increase, to be clear, the super tops are going to remain, at least in theory, um, although they are saying you can rate it for home deposits, so just be careful there too. This is, to my mind, a real taking, you know, stealing defeat from the jaws of victory type scenario where if it's just left alone, we are in a really, really, really great place in the nation to be retiring in comfort and, as importantly, taking the pressure off the federal budget to provide pensions and other things for people who otherwise would call on the public purse. If you've got enough money yourself, you're not going to need extra cash to fund retirement. If you don't have enough super, guess what? You're going to come knocking on the door for the pension and the government's going to be a funny position in 10, 15, 20 years' time that it wouldn't be if we retained the super increase. So please think very critically. I understand there are different points of view and I accept that, but just please think critically about this. Make sure you have thought it through because when it comes to the policy decision, what the government is allowed to do either way will come down to how much pressure or otherwise we put on them and what they think they can get away with. So if you are someone who believes super should be increased, then please be mindful, be thoughtful, and be aware of the changes that are happening. It's a bit of a rant, Doc. Do you have any thoughts? I, oh, I, I, I don't know. Like I have not been and I've not looked into the 600 page or whatever, 650 pages long. <laughs> I spent way too much time um, on it. <laughs> so um, maybe you have read it. I haven't. Not the whole thing, to be fair. No, no, I haven't so, got through 650 so pages. So I don't but. know. Like, I mean, as, as you said, right, you can make a case. <laughs> so we were having this debate, right? And I, I think I can make a case either way. Mm. And as, I, as you've rightly pointed out, right? So the well-paid workers today... Mm. I mean, in many ways, if super increases for everyone, it's the well-paid worker who's disproportionately going to be advantaged, mm-hmm. right? Because they're going to get more super um, and, you know, their money is going to compound yeah. at a higher rate, right? So there's yeah. that, which then which then the question is, you could ask the question, well, there's the divide then between uh, those people who have more and those mm-hmm. people who have that's like, that compounds over time, yeah, right? Absolutely. That, that's number one. So the number two, I mean... A couple of funny things about Super, right? I mean, while Super is designed for, as you rightly pointed out, for use later on in life, it has been actually allowed uh, by law that it can be taken out for buying a car or or buying a holiday. (laughs) I'm making this up. Maybe it's not even allowed for those reasons. No, no, it is. That's the thing. It was the research has been done, mate. Jet skis and cars and God knows what. Yeah. So so then, I mean, then the real question is, Does it matter? Because you can put more in and you can just take more out. Well, to be uh, fair, the early access scheme in theory has a sunset, so right. it should be over as long as... But this is the thing. But, right? but it can be point. made. It can, again, the sunset, you right. know, another, another point in time, the same thing can happen. Number three, exactly. I think, uh, with... Uh, I'm personally a big fan. So, and this doesn't really... This is, and maybe this is not stuff that works for... Um, for everyone, especially mm. for those who are marginalized, right? right so right. Um, it's easy for me to say this, that you know, everybody should actually take action in their own hands oh, in terms absolutely. of what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. But sometimes you just can't take the action and realize that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, totally. But my point is that the other thing, like so a pension, super a pension so in many parts of the world, right? So mm. pension exists, for example, in Greece, right? right? One of the things that government can do, because we don't know what the future is, right? In 30 years, government yeah. could say, well, now you need to work until 75 before we're going to yeah, give you your exactly. money. Yep. Right, yep. so that it's just a flick of a button in many ways, which could change the rules. So yep, I don't know. 
effectively, I'm not really sure how much money should go into super. Mm-hmm. Um, the other point I have is the issue really is for the marginalized people, right? So if somebody's earning $50,000, whether actually you give them 10% or 12% mm-hmm. or actually 15%, yes, 15% mm-hmm. is better than 10%. It is. I can confirm But that. it's still not going to be enough. <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> so, so the other problem is that it is actually not going to solve the problem there. You know, our colleague, Ed, had a, I thought it was an interesting idea is, you know, you could create some tax incentive models mm-hmm. where it says that up to, until your super balance hits a certain value. Yeah. You're not taxed on it, I think that's fair. and that's that could be the same for anyone and everyone, mm-hmm. irrespective mm-hmm. of what um, they're earning, right? Yeah. So until let's say you know, super has got at least two hundred k, that they're not going to tax you anything mm-hmm. um, on it, mm-hmm. um, and that encourages people to get to the two hundred k mark, and then yeah. the, you know, allow compounding to work. So I think stuff like that uh, could I work. But again, it's a great idea, Doc. I think it's a it's a I, fantastic idea. I thought it's, it's a yeah, because it just it seems that. I like. I would like to get more money. Mm-hmm. Yes, me too. Right? <laughs> we all like to get <laughs> yeah, more money. But the thing is, yeah. it does not solve the problem correct, that is going to solve. Giving me three percent more, hey, I'll take it. Yeah, yeah, but it's yeah. not. It's three percent more is not necessary for me. Yes, yeah, it's yeah. great to have three percent more. I can yeah. buy a, maybe a boat yeah, uh, in retirement, right? But I could live without the boat. The boat yeah. is not necessary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that that's my point. So what I, I think Ed's uh, Ed Vesley's idea that maybe you don't need to have a threshold until which you don't tax uh, the super. The super has fifteen percent tax right now right um so i think that's a fantastic idea and maybe that would you know that is probably the equivalent of increasing super so i mean i don't know i again i've not read the report i don't have a view um but you know there's some just some other side of the story Uh, you know i I like that a lot man my again like this is one of those things where purely as an investor for my myself and and the recommendation we give our members this doesn't matter at all right but for, for my for my sins or otherwise and frankly as a business we've always taken care of the individual investor and the individual uh, consumer. And so I think that's, you know, as, as a business, we're trying to do the right thing and say, you know what, there are some bigger issues here that are worth talking about. I think to your point, the low-income earner is, is a big problem. I think also too that the working mother who takes three, five, ten years off work to look after kids who was already probably working part-time before and or after, I mean, you can get, if you spend 15 years earning effectively nothing or a part-time wage in a, in a even, even a moderately well-paid job, if you're only working 20 hours a week, um, it's very, very, very hard to compile enough super that it actually make a difference. And I think that's, as you rightly say, I think the percentage in contribution is the first thing. But as you then say, I think there's also op- other opportunities to make sure that at a minimum we have enough. And I've got a, um, I've got a thought. And I think I've said this before. I reckon we could solve this whole problem. And here's my plan. My plan is that when a child is born, the government puts somewhere between five and 10 grand into an account for that child that they can access, invested in equity markets and others if you need to, they can they can access when they're 65 with well and truly more than one and a half million dollars worth of compound returns in that. The sheer value of 65 years of unbroken compounding left alone would mean employers wouldn't get hurt. It would mean no money was subtracted from the economy through compulsory super contributions. The total amount of money being put aside is minuscule. Think about how much money you or me or someone else would have put aside from super gets out of the economy, employers have to pay the bill for 40 years-ish of our working lives. If you could put aside 10 grand at birth, I just it's an absolute no-brainer. Yes, it takes some government vision and God, good luck with that, but am I, am I so far wrong, mate? Is that not just the world's most elegant solution? Um, speaking humbly, of course. Well, like, <laughs> I, I mean, it's a good solution, right? Uh, again, like... I think the problem with anything is, as mm-hmm. you know, this is something that you've told me before. That you know, one of the things with any government solution is that, well, it you know, the people are going to elect a new government, new government at some point, and people are going to elect different governments at different points in time. They can change the rules, right? So while you might expect you know, uninterrupted 65 years of compounding, mm, somebody else mm. could come in and say, hey, I want you to compound now for 80 years, right? Yeah. Somebody could say you can take out the money at this point in time. So in, in many ways, uh, re- I don't know. You would say that you know. Let's not uh, uh, let not you know. Perfect be the enemy of good. I would say that. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And and in this case, yeah, that <laughs> sounds like a good solution. You know, where you could just put some money in the beginning and just let it compound. And I think that's a fantastic idea. It solves a lot of other issues. Um, and I don't know why uh, the government wouldn't do it, right? Because you could totally. uh, you could I guess in theory remove a lot of other bureaucratic. Um, 
bureaucratic processes that oh, exist today. Imagine all the to fees you'd save over over sixty years of compounding. Well, if you took it out of the hands of the bloody, you know, the the, the if the industry funds and the retail funds and the taxing and all the bureaucracy, like you know, no, not just that, right? But okay. I mean, even if you enable this at at some point in time, you don't need all the other support organizations that the government has to support people later on in life, right? Because you have enabled this for everyone, right? So if you've enabled 65 years of compounding for, for <laughs> presumably from this point on, if it's enabled today, then in like, you know, 70 years, you actually don't need to have, um, you know, support systems that are currently available because everybody should in theory have plenty of money. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, let's move on. Uh, mate, a lot of mailbag, as I said, so really excited to start in that one. We've got a bit of time left, which is kind of lovely. Let's go with the first question from Giles. Giles, you get go first. Oh, well, I was going to say because you um, said nice things about us, but you just happen to be first in the list. Uh, Giles says, here's one for the best value podcast. That's all right. I might quote Giles on that in our marketing. He says, I would love to get your thoughts on Atlassian. It is an amazing Aussie success story, but seems very under-owned by Australians. Perhaps the doctor of all things tech. There you go. The doctor of all things tech. It's your new title. <laughs> could explain exactly what the company does. That's a good start. And who he thinks their competitors might be. Hashtag get Doc on Parlor. I'm going to leave that one well and truly alone. Uh, Doc, uh, Atlassian, you, you are, you're an aficionado of US stocks, particularly US tech stocks. Atlassian, probably their most high-profile tech would-be uh, titan, maybe after pay getting there somewhere, but, but Atlassian certainly the first and largest for now. Your thoughts on the company? Uh, we know, so it's in, it's in workflow, work communication software, so Slack competitor effectively, other things as well. Um, do you want to explain what more what the company does or just talk about what you think about it? Well, I can briefly, I actually don't own Atlassian, so I haven't looked okay. at it very closely. Right. Um, so Atlassian basically is is collaboration software, and it's collaboration software for things like you know developing code, managing projects, and things like that. So you know, think think they own things like Trello, which is basically a collaboration software for projects. Um, they have something called Jira, which is a collaboration software. Um, uh, you know, if you're if you're doing software development, for example. So who are the competitors? There are lots of competitors in this space. Um, you know, for collaboration, you could use you know open source things. You could you know you can use uh, you know other Trello competitors and things like that. They've got a good, really good model where I think people discover how good their solution is and, you know, they basically organically adopt it and uh, so they don't spend much money on sales and marketing, which is really, really good. And then once you've got people in and you've, you know, got them into your system, you could, I guess, sell them other things. So the typical uh, software as a service sort of business. So it, it's a good little business, really nice business, uh, but I haven't looked at it very closely Um Largely, not for any specific reason. I own a lot of other software companies, and sometimes I just try to not own only software. So, you know, if I've got a lot of software, I might sometimes say, okay, I want to own mm, some payments mm. companies and things like that. So, yeah, but very interesting company growing at a good rate. Mm, mm. Um, you know, yeah. Uh, so, if somebody wants to own it, I guess they should dig deeper. <laughs> nice. All right, there you go, Giles. Hopefully that helps. Hashtag get Doc on Parlor. We'll leave that alone. You're not on Parlor. You're on Instagram yet, Doc? No. It's on Instagram. Okay. Let's go to a question from Matthew. Hi, Scott and Doc. Thanks for the tasty morsels of financial wisdom. I like that. Matt says, I've been reading a couple of your book recommendations and just finished Gitonomics by Ross Gittens. That is, I, I, want to, I undervalue Gitonomics. Really, really good book. Well worth reading. Uh, I will say Ross Gittens, I won't, I won't give away either my age or Ross's, but suffice it to say, he was the expert who spoke at our at my pre-HSC economics lecture. Uh, so before the HSC, he held a lecture at, I think it was one of the one of the sandstone unis in the, in the CBD of Sydney. And uh, a mate of mine, Tim, came along. We, we both sat and listened to Ross Gittins talk about economics for a while. I don't know if that helped or hindered, uh, but here I am doing a podcast. So I worked that out. Anyway, Matthew says, it's a good reminder that life is full of compromises. Maybe that's Economics 101. It's a really good point. There are economic forces, he says, that tug us different ways in decisions about career, family, education, etc., my question is about ethical investing. I've heard your thoughts on not wanting to be activist shareholders, but Giddens would suggest that it's also important to seek a greater worth in our vocation. Just interested if you have any views on how this compromise has played out in your investments. Please keep up the banter and the tangents. Full on Matt. Doc, I really, really like this question, mate, because it's a nice it's a nice combination of kind of, you know, not, not just pure investing, but the life kind of approach. Now, I will say very quickly, just to, to clarify Matt's comments, 
I have no issue actually with activist investors doing something ethically necessarily. My point is unless you're act being literally an activist, being a passive shareholder makes zero difference when it comes to ethical investing because it just doesn't impact what the company does or how its, uh, how its operations run or what decisions it makes. If you're an activist, if you get enough of those shares, of course, you can make a difference. And activists are involved in a whole lot of different areas. There are, there are financial activists trying to um, you know get companies to, to do things differently to increase the value of the shares. There are certainly plenty of ethical or environmental activists who would speak at BHP's AGM and the like. So that's different. Uh, when I talk about ethical investing, I talk about passive ethical investing of the of the approach that a retail shareholder we don't have a choice. You know, if I buy a thousand shares or two thousand shares in a company, I'm, I'm not I'm not being activist there. I'm just either owning it or not. So it's not we're not my 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 comment isn't about activism per se, just the the lack of value benefit from being a passive shareholder and investing ethically. Anyway, that aside, Doc, Gittins a suggestion that. It's important to seek a greater worth in our vocation. I like the way you phrase that. Any thoughts on that? Any any additional thoughts in terms of our role as investors that goes more that goes above just the very concept of buying and selling the best shares we can find? Yeah, like uh, I don't know. Like I haven't actually thought about that. Um, it's a good question, though, isn't it? It's, it's a great question. So, in most professions, I think one of the things that you can think about uh, is. Um, teaching others and helping others right so and by teaching others it would mean you know whether it's your colleagues or your peers and things like that where you can sort of impart i guess how you think about different things or mm, how you do mm, different things mm. and there's probably an opportunity for people to learn from that but other than that i mean i don't know like i mean you know we try to make a difference via investing but mm. um, i don't know i wouldn't pull I don't know. I haven't actually thought about this. Yeah, I, don't have good, idea, I, I don't. I don't have a good answer for it. Yeah, I'm gonna. Matter, I'm. I'm gonna be pretty pragmatic here, mate. I actually think. I think Ross is right in general terms, in the sense of, I mean, you know, Doc and I could get paid more money somewhere else, quite frankly, if we were market beating investors working for a some sort of fund or something else, and just out there to make a buck and do what we could. We could make more money doing that. The, the reality of the job that we do is we are in less than we otherwise could. And we have, we get nice trade-offs, right? And that's part of it, right? We get, we're get we both working from home. Um, you know, it's a really cool work environment. But also we get to help people. And so there's that vocation thing you talk about is really, it's, it's very present in my choice of career. I left another career to join The Motley Fool specifically because I love what we do. I wanted to be an investor. I wanted to help other people the same way the Fool helped me. So that's, for me, that's absolutely true. I, being pragmatic though, um, I think... If you're going to seek greater worth, to use your phrase, and it's a good phrase, you have to believe that that worth can be generated by an action. So yes, you can just simply feel better, and that's real. If you if you feel you know psychologically happier because you're doing something, then of course that that worth is a value to you, right? It makes you happier, more satisfied with your life. So that that in itself is worthwhile. But I I I just I will go back to the point, not to not to bang it, just to answer your question directly is. I think it would be a shame if you're going to go and seek greater worth, if you're going to go and make more of a difference, then I think you want to actually be making a difference. I think the worst thing, maybe not the very worst thing, but it would be a shame for more people who said, you know what, I'm out there making a difference. I'm investing ethically. That's making a difference to the world. I'm having a positive impact. If you're really not, I mean, I guess on some level there's no harm in it, right? It's kind of placebo effect type stuff. If you if you think you're getting better, you are. So maybe maybe again, there's just simply personal value in, in misleading yourself. Um, for me though, having knowing the fact that it doesn't help, I don't believe for me there is any worth created by the fact I do it other than some sort of psychic benefit. And that's, again, not a, not a, not nothing. Uh, but I would rather ha- actually be sure I'm making a difference rather than just trying to make a difference or believing falsely that I'm making a difference. Um, by the way, Phil, if you haven't read Gittinomics by Ross Gittins, it's a really, really great book. It might be too simplistic if you're deeply steeped in economics and, and theory, but I really loved it. I'm a big, big Ross Gittins fan. He's a, one of the best economists and economic writers out there makes a heap of sense so regularly if you're it's appointment reading for me in the smh uh, i don't know if it's in the age or not certainly it's online anyway so don't miss ross giddens um if you if you want to learn more about the economy he's just fantastic anything else on that doc i have nothing to add all right mate the bad news is we're there's, finished there's bad news well we're finished which if you want to go and do something else it's good news for, for our listeners, for us, I, I love doing this podcast. You love doing this podcast. It's bad news for us. There is some good news there, mate. What is the good news? Can you can you guess? Another one? It's us with special. Special with podcast <laughs> for the mailbag. <laughs> we will be coming back on Sunday with a very full mailbag. So we'll do our level best to get through these questions in detail, but also reasonably quickly so we can get to them all because we do have an absolute heap. Between now and this Sunday, though, when you've got some spare time, jump on the web, go and join 
one of the best value investment services in the entire world. I said one of the best, so I can get away with that. In the entire world, fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. That's the link you'll get Motley Fool Extreme opportunities for a song, an absolute song. It's not cheap. It's just incredibly great value. It's also pretty cheap, but don't tell anyone. Um, Just stupid cheap. Anyway, go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast to hear more from Doc and our colleague Kevin to get some great stock picks of stocks that those guys think have really strong long-term growth potential. They carry a bit more risk, as we always say. But if you buy a portfolio of them, you manage your portfolio carefully and you understand the approach and you manage your emotions and temperament, Doc and Kevin are going to do their level best to continue bringing you market-beating investments. So do go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. The other thing you can do for us is follow us on social media. Um, whether you're a Twitterer, a Facebooker, an Instagrammer, are there better words for that? I, I have no idea, but those look like good words to me. I've heard, I've heard people on Twitter called <laughs> tweeps, so kind of peeps and Twitter <laughs> peeps, tweeps. I don't know if there's a thing for Facebook people or for Instagram people. I'm not sure. Influences. We can't all be influencers. This, I'm certainly this, not this tweep sounds weird. Tweep? Yeah, not, yeah, no, not, not, I think I might have used it once. It, it, yeah, it makes me feel. Anyway, jump onto the social medias because we're fun to follow. You can chat with us. Um, we try and engage where we can. It's, it's always good fun. You can also uh, hear and interact with our fellow members and readers and listeners. So it's all kind of fun. Jump on Twitter at Anirban Mahanti. Become a doc tweep at Anirvan Mahanti, at TMF Scott P is my handle, and the Motley Fool's account is at the Motley Fool AU. You can get us on Instagram, well, at least myself and the Fool, at the same handles, TMF Scott P and the Motley Fool AU. And if you're on Facebook, and who isn't these days, even our grandparents' grandparents seem to be on Facebook these days, go to Scott Phillips Money or the Motley Fool Australia. All right, Doc, we're done. Of course, if you're not already... Before we go, please do subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes, your favorite Android podcast app, or Podcast One, of course. And if you like what we're doing, please leave us a rating. Five stars would be lovely, as I always say. I'd ask for six, but they've only got five. So just you know, carry one over and keep it for next time. And don't forget, of course, to tell your friends. Share the love, because if you're enjoying and getting value out of this, I reckon some of your mates will too. And of course, you can get a dose of foolishness and some marketing, including some of our best offers, by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple m that's a bit uh triple m it's a bit kind of dark and scary anyway sometimes you have to change it i'll go with triple m (laughs) all right that's it for this week's monthly full money we're back on sunday surprise with a special mailbag edition full on full on The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.